morning. This morning's scripture lesson is uh, from uh, the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which may be found on page 67 of your pew Bibles in the New Testament section. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of my favorite stories about a despised foreigner who shows the quality of love. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, God, Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Well, in about a month's time, you and I are going to part ways. Kathy and I will begin a new chapter of our lives in Wilmington, Massachusetts. And you'll begin a new chapter in your life, defined by the wonderful and the creative ministry of Pastor Cheryl. There's sadness in our endings. But there's hope, and there's promise in new beginnings. I do sincerely believe that both of us have good futures. And I want, Kathy and I want the very, very best for you. And we know that you feel the same way toward us. So I thought over these next few Sundays, 
I'd like to draw a picture of what I believe God's future is, not so much for Wesley Church, but for the whole church, what it is that we are called to do and how that calling will be a blessing to the future. So I want to wish you a future filled with compassion. And there's no better parable to think about compassion than the Good Samaritan. There's an old Arab proverb that says, to have a good neighbor, you must be one. And the question, who is my neighbor, is the one that Jesus explores in the telling of the parable of the good Samaritan. And the implication of the way the question is, respond, is asked is to set some kind of boundary, some type of limit as, it, as to who is worthy of our neighborly affections. The implication of the question is, what are the boundary lines? Who deserves my help? Well, I can understand someone asking such a question. There is an awful lot of need, and there's probably more need than each one of us can respond to, and sometimes we just have to make choices and looking for guidance in the making of those choices is not a bad thing. And yet in a very compelling story, Jesus turns the question around. The definition of neighbor is not external to me. It is internal. The primary question is not who is my neighbor, but how am I neighborly? You see, compassion does not flourish when we start out making a list of who is and who is not worthy No doubt there were some who, when they heard that story about someone abused and left for dead along the side of the road, would have said something like, well, it's his own blank fault. <laughs> what on earth was that person doing traveling that dangerous road from Jerusalem down to Jericho all by himself? He should have known better. Or no doubt there was another who would have been a little suspicious. Perhaps the person laying there on the side of the road appearing to be victimized was faking it. Maybe it was a ploy 
that when this someone comes to attend to this person, he could be assaulted more easily. But compassion never flourishes when we start at the place of asking who is and who is not worthy. Compassion will flourish when we start with and honor those holy impulses that arise in us when we see someone who is hurting. Compassion flourishes when we feel the surge of power of our church membership vows to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they may present themselves. Compassion flourishes when the holy impulses for empathy and the, even the anger when people are treated unjustly. Martin Luther King Jr. made a wonderful comment on this parable. I've changed his words a little bit to make them a little more inclusive. But this is what Dr. King said. So I can imagine that the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this one, what will happen to me? And then the Good Samaritan came by, and by the very nature of concern, reversed the question. If I do not stop and help this one who was abused and left on the side of the road, what will happen to this person? Compassion flourishes when we start with the holy impulses of empathy and the search for justice. I don't know if you're familiar with the website Pathos or not, but it's a website that tells uh, powerful and hopeful stories about progressive Christianity. And I have one from that website I'd like to share with you. There was a gentleman whose name was Patrick Green. He'd been a lifelong atheist known for his public stands against Christianity, and recently he announced that he had become a Christian. Now, there are lots of ways to look at this. Some Christians might take this as a validation that they were right and the atheist was wrong. Some might consider it a point for the good guys. But such attitudes further divide between people with more in common than not. 
Aside from that, it misses what's most important. You see, Green was what I would call a militant atheist. He threatened to file lawsuits against the courthouse if they didn't remove the nativity scene from the public property. It wasn't just that he didn't believe in God. He fought publicly against expressions of Christianity wherever he deemed them inappropriate. Green, who had been a taxi driver for 33 years, had been diagnosed with cataracts, and he didn't have health insurance to pay for the surgery, and he was at risk of losing his license and his livelihood. Well, Jessica Cry heard about his circumstances, and she mobilized the people at her church to donate some funds to help Mr. Green pay for the surgery. The small community of faith collected about $400, and their generosity inspired others to join in. Atheists and Christians came together to add to the fund until there was enough to cover the medical bills. Well, Green was dumbfounded. He could hardly conceive that a Christian woman whose faith had been the object of his attacks for years would respond to his disdain with compassionate generosity. There are other elements to the story like Green's lingering doubts about his unbelief. But to me, that's not what matters most. What's most important is that Cry's response to Green's need, in looking past their differences, even his own disregard for her closely held faith, she found her sense of compassion. It was this Christ-like act that moved Green to reevaluate his position on faith. Cry in her church did not hold the gift over his head requiring that he renounce his atheism before he received it, and they did not crow about a sense of moral superiority. They just gave him the money because it was the right thing to do, and it was. But before reading too much into this, it's important to note Christians weren't the only ones who gave to the fund. Atheists, too, were so moved. And the fact that they did the same thing that the Christians did is important to note. Yes, the Christians could have found more reason not to help, and yes, bystanders can make any number of assumptions about the atheists' motivations. But we can also take the story as an object lesson in the fundamental common ground, the basic goodness in human beings, regardless of their beliefs.
You see, Christians are as guilty as atheists of widening the distance between the two perceived groups. And both have the opportunity every day to close the acts, to close the gap, with simple acts of compassion. The risk, of course, is that the act may not be met with the desired result, but that's not the point. Compassion has no agenda. If it does, it's no longer compassion. But if we give without expectation of a result, we leave room for love to inspire. But it takes us removing ourselves and our ideologies from the center of the story. And when we do, amazing things often happen. They won't always turn out the way we expect. But that's one of the vulnerable risks of love. The story of compassion and its power. Well, we wish for you a compassionate future. We know that you have great levels of compassion within you. And we pray that your future is rich in expressing that compassion for others. There's a ritual for morning prayer in the United Methodist hymnal. You don't have to turn to it. But as a part of that ritual, there is a prayer that you can pray every day if you want. And I pray it often. New every morning is your love, great God of light. And all day long you are working for good in the world. Stir up in us a desire to love you and to be devoted to your Son, Jesus Christ, and to live peacefully with our neighbors. A prayer of great compassion. Amen.